Tonight, I hope you brought your Bibles. You're going to need them again. We're going to be jumping around some tonight. Some of it I'm just going to tell you, just in the essence of saving a little time here and there. Tonight, I want us to begin together from the Word by the comparison of two lives. Across the history of God's dealing with mankind, only heaven would record how many people God has revealed Himself to, how many people God has used, how many people have been a part of God's strategic plans. But across history and across the days of the Bible, there were people, these were not the only people that God ever revealed. These were not the only people that God ever used and blessed. But there were those that God did reveal Himself to, and He used in a phenomenal measure that God, out of His wisdom, chose to put their stories into what we have now come to call the Bible, God's Holy Word. And I want us to compare tonight for a little bit the lives of two young men. The first one story begins in Genesis chapter 37. One of our earlier meetings, we had talked about the shift that is coming right now in the earth regarding God honoring those that will honor Him. And those that dishonor Him, He will hold them in light esteem. And we look together from the Word about all the people in Genesis and the way they related to God as being the God of just bless me, bless me, bless me. But you remember that one of the people we talked about was a man by the name of Jacob and how Jacob was the guy that wrestled with the Lord in the middle of the night saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. And the Lord wanted to get away and Jacob said, no, I won't let you go until you bless me. And God blessed him. But one of the blessings that God gave to Jacob was a young man by the name of Joseph. Jacob had a number of sons and children that became part of his lineage. But as an older man, he became the father of a boy by the name of Joseph. In chapter 37 of Genesis, we begin to read the story of Joseph when he was 17 years old. He was feeding the flock with his brothers. I don't know what it is about sheep and flocks that we find that all through the Bible, but apparently God likes to show up and reveal himself to people that take care of sheep. And Joseph was one of those. He was 17 years old, a young man out in the middle of nowhere, just taking care of sheep with his brothers. But Joseph was not just any ordinary 17-year-old. Joseph was a recipient of that struggle that his daddy Jacob had had way back when that night as a young man out there in the wilderness with the Lord when he said, I won't let you go until you bless me. And Jesus finally consented and said, I'll bless you. I'll bless you and I'll bless your seed. And part of that blessing that had come upon Jacob had been manifested in the birth and the life of this son named Joseph that had the hand of God resting upon him, even as a boy. And God began to give Joseph dreams. 
He began to appear to Joseph in dreams. And in these dreams, Joseph didn't really altogether understand what those dreams were. But his father Jacob knew that it was God, and he knew that God's doing something very special with my boy. And Joseph, being a young man, is having these dreams, and his father Jacob, because he loved him so, had given him a coat of many colors. But Joseph's brothers were jealous. And God began to reveal himself to young Joseph. And Joseph, because he lacked wisdom and discernment, he was naive. He was inexperienced. Joseph had not learned, unfortunately, one of the most needful lessons that people usually learn one way or the other in their lives, and that is everybody's not going to be as excited about God blessing you as you are. How many have made that discovery? Not everybody's excited about your blessing as you might be about your blessing. Amen? And so here's this naive kid with the hand of God on his life that loves the Lord, and God's revealing himself, and God's giving dreams. He's wearing this coat of many colors. And his testimony was not well received by the brothers. The brothers did not receive him well. And so while they were out in the wilderness, they said, you know, we're just tired of this arrogant kid and all of his nice coat that daddy gave him and all of his dreams about the things that God is going to do with him and his destiny. And I've about heard enough about that. How about you guys? Yeah, we've heard about enough of that too. Well, I tell you what let's do. Daddy will never know. Why don't we just kill this thing right out here and We'll just kill him, and we'll just kill an animal, throw some blood on it, and take it back to Daddy and say all we found was his coat. And we'll just kill him, get rid of him. So that was the strategy. We're going to kill the dreamer. We're going to kill the one that the hand of God rested upon. We're going to kill the one that God is revealing himself to. We're going to kill the one that carries the anointing and carries the blessing. We're just going to kill him and make up a story and stick to it. Daddy will never know the difference. And off in the distance, there were some slave traders headed to Egypt. And Somebody said, that's free money right there. I mean, why don't we just sell him? And so that's exactly what they decided to do, was to sell him. And so they sold Joseph to the slave traders, and they took Joseph to Egypt. And they sold him to a man by the name of Potiphar. Would you look, please, over at chapter 39? Joseph, the anointed of God, the one touched with God, with the destiny of God that was on his life, been sold as a slave to a man by the name of Potiphar, an officer of the Pharaoh, captain of the guard, and an Egyptian, brought him from the Ishmaelites that had taken him down there. But verse 2 says, the Lord was with Joseph. You know, Joseph was in the glory. Joseph knew God. He knew the anointing. He knew the touch of God. He knew the Lord was always right there at his right hand. He was consciously aware of the Lord's presence. And the consequence of the Lord being with him, it said that he was a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. You remember the scripture we've used again, and again, those that honor me, I will honor And when we honor God, the Lord will literally go with us, and His hand will be upon us, His favor will be upon us, and He will honor us by blessing us. Here's the young man that's now been sold 
as a slave, betrayed. I mean, anybody needs to talk to a counselor, get some ministry, some inner healing. I mean, yeah, it's probably him. And I mean, we don't see any evidence of his neediness at all. I mean, the Lord was with him. The glory was with him. And even though he was done this terrible way, sold into slavery, God was blessing him. And the master saw in verse 3. I mean, isn't it neat when the sinners see the hand of the Lord upon your life? I mean, that's the reason we teach on the favor of the Lord and honor in God, is I'm just waiting for a generation of Christians to arise that the world out there is looking upon the church and looking upon God's people and saying, I want some of that. And that's what will happen when we honor Him, He will honor us. Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. I mean, he's a teenager, abused, sold into slavery, purchased. And here's an Egyptian that notices everything Joseph does. God's with him. God blesses it, prospers it. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. And then he made him an overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under his authority. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house because of Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus he left all that to Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. And she said, lie with me. But he refused. And he said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house. And he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. And then Joseph asked the question, he said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? I mean, Potiphar's wife is attracted to this young man. And he said, no, that's not going to go anywhere, lady, because I'm here to serve your husband, and he trusts me, and he has put everything in my hand and I'm responsible for everything, and I'm faithful in everything. And he so trusts me, he's given me everything he has but you. But then Joseph took it a step further. He said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? How can I do this? I can't do this, ma'am. I'm sorry, because I can't do this great sin against God. Potiphar's wife continued and continued in this pursuit of Joseph. And Joseph continued, continued to refuse and say, No, I have drawn a line in the sand before God and my integrity and my character. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And one day Potiphar's wife came. Having done everything she could to seduce him, she came and grabbed him, and Joseph fled. He just ran from that scene 
And she was so outraged that he had refused her in that way because of his stand for God and saying, I'm not going there, that she accused him of trying to rape her. And when her husband came home, she said, that boy of yours, that Joseph, that slave boy, nobody was here. We were alone. And he tried to take advantage of me. And you remember the story of the outrage of Potiphar, her husband, and those that were there, and they seized Joseph, and they threw him into prison, charging him with a crime that he never committed. And yet there in the prison, the Bible says, and I'm just kind of telling the story at this point, but there in the prison, guess what? The Lord was still with Joseph, and the glory was still with Joseph. And the anointing was still with Joseph. And though all of these things had happened to him, betrayed by his brothers, threatened with death, sold into slavery, life got good again, now accused of attempted rape, locked away in prison, the Lord is with Joseph and the anointing is with Joseph. And Joseph has not forgotten the dreams and the vision and the walk with God that he had. And my brothers and sisters, as a young man, having gone through all this misfortune and injustice, by the time even in jail with the dream interpretation and all those things, by the time Joseph was 30 years old, he was prime minister of Egypt. Just as the Lord had said, because the Lord was with him and the blessing of God. Because Joseph honored God, God honored Joseph. Amen. And all that Joseph did prospered. And Joseph ran his race, and he finished his course, as the Lord had said. We'll come back to him in a little while. But I want us to change channels now, and I want to look at a young man that is almost a mirror image of Joseph. Another teenage boy, a teenager by the name of David. Would you look with me over at 1 Samuel chapter 16? Because David lived a most extraordinary life. He had a most extraordinary love for God. David was also a shepherd boy, just like Joseph. David would go out and would keep the flocks of his father Jesse's sheep. And it was there alone with sheep that David learned how to pray, that David learned how to worship, that David became an addict of God's presence and God's glory. I mean, he was just an addict. He was hopelessly addicted. He just had 24-7 out there in the middle of nowhere tending to sheep. And God would visit David just as God would visit Joseph. And God loved David. And it was in those formative teenage years that young David began to develop a great passion for God and the things of God. You remember the story of Samuel and Saul and how Saul became king and all the craziness that went on with Saul and the day came that God was getting ready to raise up another king. God told Samuel, I want you to go to the house of Jesse because one of Jesse's boys is the one that I've chosen. And so Samuel went and he said, the Lord has sent me here. And this man had great sons. 
any one of which, you know, Samuel thought would make a good king and carry the anointing and the glory as a replacement for the failure on so many levels of Saul. And so he went and he told Jesse and he said, bring me your sons, cause them to come before me and I will pray. But in verse 7 of 1 Samuel 16, the Lord said to Samuel, you're going out looking for Saul's replacement. Do not look at his appearance or his physical statue because I've refused him. You see, these young sons of Jesse started coming by, and Samuel said, well, that one right there, I mean, that's a winner right there. And the uh, Lord would say, no. They'd bring another one, and I mean, Samuel said, well, that's got to be him. The Lord would say, no. And finally, the Lord just spoke to him, said, Don't quit looking at the appearance or physical statue because I've refused him. For the Lord does not see as a man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at his heart. And so all the sons of Jesse come by, and Samuel's going, that one? Nope. That one? Nope. That one? Nope. That one? No. Finally, they ran out. Samuel's saying, did I miss God? He said, have you got any more sons? No, not really. I just got this kid. David, he's just a boy. He's just a teenager. I mean, he wasn't even worth bringing to the beauty pageant today for you. He said, send for that one. And so they sent out to the fields where this teenage boy was keeping sheep, and they brought David before Samuel. And when Samuel saw him, Samuel took the horn, verse 13, and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. The Bible says the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. The Spirit of the Lord, the anointing of God, came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went. And God just found a kid because he saw something in David's heart. And God began to move in this young man's heart in a powerful way. And you know the story of the life of David. I mean, nobody paid him much attention. All of his brothers were in the army, and they were out there to do battle against the Philistines. And there was this big eight- or nine-foot goon called Goliath. And you remember that whole thing, and Goliath's out there cussing and defiling and carrying on and saying, just bring somebody out here. And the men of God, the army of God, was so intimidated by him, they didn't know what they were going to do here. They didn't know how they were going to deal with this Goliath guy. And so the boy David goes down there to deliver lunch. And he hears this big goon Goliath out here making all this noise coming out of the front of his big ugly head about God. And something rose up inside of this boy's heart. And he said to his brothers, what's wrong with you? You going to let this thing get away with this? And it was, shut up, David. It was just the same reaction as Joseph's brothers had had to Joseph, when it was just, you're a boy, you're a kid, you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, son, just shut up and go away, or we'll get rid of you. And that was the same reaction that David's brothers had to him. And David just wouldn't go away. I mean, if he said, there's nobody around here that'll go out there and fight that big goon, I'll do it. I mean, I'll do it. None of the rest of you wimps will do it. I'll go do it. That thing's out there blaspheming the Lord God of Israel and the anointing of the Holy Ghost is on me and what's on me does not like what's on him and I've heard enough of this and if nobody else around here will put on their big boy pants and go out there and deal with that big thing, I'll tend to him. And it was shut up, David, go home. 
David wouldn't go home. And so they put Saul's armor on him. And I mean, David said, I'm burning up in all this mess. Get rid of this stuff. He took his slingshot and he went out there to look at this Goliath thing. And Goliath is like, what? You? I mean, he got mad that something like a little gnat like David would come out there, that they would send a joke like this. And David just informed him of his destiny. (laughs) David prophesied to him, what's getting ready to happen to you, buddy? Uh, You know, the battle is the Lord's. And here's what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to kill you, you big, ugly thing. And then I'm going to cut your big, ugly head off. And I mean, you can just see the drool running out of Goliath's mouth. And David took that slingshot and went around a few times and turned that rock loose. And that rock went like the bullet out the barrel of a 30 alt 6 deer rifle right to Goliath's head, caught him right there, went right through the grease and the grime and the hair, right through the skin and the meat and right through the bone into his big dumb brain. And I mean, he just went down. And David went over there and crawled up on top of him and knocked his big ugly head off. And it didn't take long for that news break to get around of what David had done to Goliath. And so the anointing was on David, but now people are talking about, well, Saul has killed his thousands, but I mean, David? David is now being used in an amazing way, and Saul's out to kill him. You can remember how David related to that one that was trying to kill him, and how he would do Saul no wrong, because David had such an anointing. Such a respect for the anointing of God that was on Saul that on several occasions he could have easily killed Saul. He knew who he was. He knew that he was the king of Israel. He knew the Lord was with him. He knew that God's power was on him. And the Bible describes David as being a man after God's own heart. But David wouldn't touch Saul only because Saul had the anointing of God upon his life. And you remember the story of David and how Saul chased him and David and his 400 in the cave of Adullam. And you remember the, all those stories of David and his exploits and how God used him because the Lord was with him. And how the day eventually came that David became the king of Israel, just like Joseph had become the prime minister of Egypt. Two young men that had walked very, very similar paths because of the hand of God and the glory of God that had rested upon them. But David had come into his own. He was now beloved. He was now respected. He had now emerged as the most popular king in all of Israel's history. And beloved, he's got such an anointing on him. He's a worshiper. He's a man after God's own heart. David is just a radical, a radical for the glory. I mean, Pastor Terry, if David had been alive today, he'd be the first one in the ministry line. He wanted hands laid on him. He wanted God to touch him. He wanted to get filled. He'd be the first one to the meeting. He'd be the last one to leave. He couldn't get enough. I mean, he'd be in the worship team, Josh. I mean, he couldn't get enough. He was a glutton, just a glutton for God. But there was a dimension of David's personality In spite of the fact that they carried the same destiny, they carried the same glory and the same anointing, Joseph drove a little straighter on the road, whereas David had always occasionally gotten over into a ditch or two along the way. 
Joseph was right down the middle, straight as an arrow, when Potiphar's wife came and tried to seduce him. Beloved, did you realize that when Potiphar's wife was trying to seduce Joseph, have you ever figured it out that that was before God gave the Ten Commandments about adultery? Moses had not been to the mountain yet. And yet Joseph walked the line because of the integrity of his heart and the honor he had for God. David was a little mushy at places. Still loved God, still loved the anointing, still loved the glory. But we get over to 2 Samuel chapter 11. The Bible says it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and the servants with him in all of Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Verse 2, it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. And so David sent Joseph ran, David sent, and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? And so David sent, Joseph ran, messengers, and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. And you remember the story of that night. Beloved, Potiphar's wife and Bathsheba shared a lot of common characteristics. Bathsheba was no lily-white, innocent lady in all of this. Bathsheba knew exactly what she was doing. She knew when she went out there that David would be there. She knew that David would see her. Bathsheba was as involved in this event as Potiphar's wife was in the event that took place with Joseph. The only difference was Joseph ran and David sent. When that evening was over, Bathsheba had gone home, and no one but David's closest servants would know what had taken place that night. The two had become three, for Bathsheba was now pregnant. And you remember the story of how later Bathsheba came back and sent word to David, David, I'm pregnant. You remember the story how David's got to get a story, David's got to cover it up, the pregnancy and who the father is. And so he sent out to the battle for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, and and brought him home. Uriah, we're so proud of you. You're doing such a great job out there fighting all of these other armies. We just thought we'd give you a little time at home. God bless you, Uriah. You just head on home, Uriah. But Uriah didn't go home. When David questioned him about it, he said, I mean, the ark of God and the army of God is out there on the field. I can't come home. And I mean, I'm still responsible. So David said, ah, Uriah, come over. Let's have a few drinks after dinner. David got him drunk, still trying to send him home to Bathsheba so that when Bathsheba turns up pregnant, oh, it's Uriah's baby. But he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. And so David had to move to plan B. And plan B was send Uriah back to the battle and get the battle going and everybody back off and Uriah dies. And so he literally had Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, murdered. And then word comes back and Bathsheba's all grief-stricken that her husband's died. And then David takes in the grieving widow of the hero, marries her, and nobody's just real careful about counting the months before the baby is born. Turn your page over to chapter 12. 
nobody would know but God. That was David's reasoning. In chapter 12, the plan has pretty well played out the way David had anticipated, and it looks like everything's going to work out. But then Nathan, the prophet, comes to David. He tells David a story about a man that had done great disservice and great injustice. And David was outraged. He was going to retaliate against the man and punish the man. But then the prophet of the Lord said to David in verse 7, David, you are the man. The little story that I told you, David, that is you. That's what you did. By sinning against God in the episode with Bathsheba and the plotting and the strategy and the treachery with her husband Uriah and how you ultimately had him killed to cover up your sin. But David, guess what? You didn't get away with it. God knew it all. And he said, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel to you, David, the most anointed, beloved man after God's own heart that learned to meet with God in the realms of glory as a teenage boy out in the fields alone tending the sheep. God said to this when he said, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your keeping. I gave you the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And had that been too little, God said, I would have given you much more, David. I've given you all this stuff ever since you were that boy out there in the wilderness, worshiping and loving me. And I anointed you and touched you, and I've raised you up and delivered you from the lion, delivered you from the bear, delivered you from Goliath, gave you all of this favor, gave you all of these riches, gave you all of this honor, and I've given all of this to you, David, and had all of that put together not been enough, all you had to do, David, was ask me, and I would have given you much, much more, David. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord? Why did you despise me? Why did you reject me to do evil in his sight? You killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You took his wife to be your wife. You killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. And now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised or disrespected me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbors, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, God said, but I will do this thing before all of Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because of this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also who is born to you shall surely die. And Nathan departed to his house. You remember the story of David from that day on. You can read the anguish of his heart of the Psalms that he wrote under the anointing of God that are included in the book of Psalms. Psalms like Psalm 51, and these Psalms of great grief and these Psalms of great passion. But brothers and sisters, if you followed the life of David, 
From this time on to the time of his death, David was never at peace again. David struggled. David battled. Things came against David again and again and again. Betrayal of his family, betrayal in his home. And though he ultimately became the great, 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 great earthly grandfather of the lineage by which Jesus came, beloved, in that day that Joseph ran, David sent. And that one night altered the course of the rest of David's life because David had the same glory. He said the same anointing. He had the same blessing. He had the same destiny as Joseph, but he did not have the same character and the same integrity. And he did not honor God in the way that Joseph honored God. And at the end of life, Joseph ended well, and David ended with a limp and a struggle. And that breach in David's life, in ministry, consequences of that stayed with him for the rest of his life. Two young men, both called by God, both had great callings, great destinies, both ultimately used in a great way with God. But Joseph ended well. David really, really didn't do so well because David did not know God in the way that Joseph knew God. When Joseph said, how can I commit this great sin? And legally, it really wasn't even sin when Joseph said that. But it was sin in his heart because he knew God. And he was willing to walk away and make a stand, even if it meant him going to jail, even if it meant him possibly giving up his destiny and his future, whatever was required. Joseph would not compromise. David did. And at the end of the day, it cost him everything. Would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1? I want us to look very quickly tonight at four very, very quick scriptures. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. It's just one of many. For the apostle Peter said, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind to be sober. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance. But verse 15, look what he said. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here. That's the life that we live right now. Peter is saying, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay. It's going to be very brief in fear. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by traditions from your father, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. My brothers and sisters, Peter, one of the original disciples of Jesus, 
became one of the foundation stones on which the New Testament church was built, authored under the anointing two of the most brilliant works of the entire New Testament. At the end of his life, he's using words like, as he who called you is holy, you be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy, for I am holy. If you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to everyone's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in this life in a holy reverence, in a holy fear. Would you look at Philippians chapter 2? I hope you notice that I'm using all Scriptures in the New Testament right now. Scriptures in the New Testament after the cross, after the resurrection. This is New Covenant stuff. This is not Old Testament law. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Philippi. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, now much more in my absence. Look what he says. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. The Apostle Paul is saying to the church at Philippi, you got to work out this thing. Work for what? Work for righteousness? No. The righteousness of God became ours when Jesus died on the cross as a free gift, a free gift given by the loving kindness and goodness and mercy of God, received by faith plus or minus nothing. It was finished on the cross. Aren't you glad? I'm glad too that when Jesus said it was finished, it was finished, it was done, all motivated by love, all motivated by mercy, all motivated by loving kindness and goodness, and bless God, thank God tonight that a holy God has extended unmerited favor and grace to you and I, or none of us would be saved. Hallelujah to God tonight. But what's he talking about here? He said, yes, Jesus died. Yes, the blood was shed. Yes, the righteousness of Christ has become yours. Yes, you've become an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. And now he's saying, now walk like it and live like it and honor God like it. Serve God like it, like that's who you are. Not that you're going to work for it, earn it, achieve it, buy it, make yourself something that you wouldn't otherwise do. But he said, now you've got to figure out how you're going to walk this thing out and work this thing out and how this thing's going to play itself out in your life, in your business, in your home, in your job, in your workplace, among your neighbors. You've got to work all of that kind of stuff out on a daily basis in a holy reverence. You see, that's what Joseph was doing when Joseph said, here she comes. I think today I make the choice to run. And David, on the other hand, here she comes. And it's like, somebody go find me out that lady's name. Joseph worked it out, but David didn't. David had a choice. And that one night stand with Bathsheba altered the rest of his life. It altered everything he did from that night on. Beloved, it wasn't supposed to be like that. But Paul said, work it out in reverence, in fear, and the awareness that you can fall, the awareness that you can mess up, the awareness that sin has consequences, and the awareness. One of the great struggles that I have in today's world is so many people that I've known, they just seem to feel like they live under the illusion. 
why I can just step out of the will of God anytime I want to because God loves me and God's grace and God's mercy and God understands and all this kind of stuff. And then I'll just hop back into the will of God because there'll be another will of God coming all along like a city bus in eight minutes. And I'll just hop on the next one because I'm living under grace. And I, I have friends that just deliberately did things that they weren't supposed to do, and they knew it when they did it, just thought I'd, well, I'll just step out of the will of God temporarily, and, and God will just pick me up with the next bus coming down the block here in a few minutes. They're out of the ministry. They're in terrible condition. They're, they're trying to figure out. They're trying to figure out, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? It's like trying to push a marshmallow into a piggy bank. They can't do it. I mean, everything they try to do, it just squishes out another direction. They pray and they fast and they cry and they repent. Oh, God, God, God. They run to this prophet, prophesy, prophesy. Tell me it's going to be all right. Tell me it's going to be okay. I mean, intercede, devil, I bind you in the name of Jesus. I speak to the mountain and command it to move. And the mountain just sits there. Because they weren't ever destined, planned, and purposed by God to have to command a mountain that they created and that they built. Is God merciful? Of course. Is God full of grace? Yes. Is God the God of the second chance? Of course He is. But we've made it so easy, we've made it so cheap that you can just, confronted with a difficult situation, you can run or you can call, but at the end of the day, hey, you can work it all out. No more. I say no more. I say we're coming into a day and an hour and a generation a moment of history that those that will honor God are going to be honored by God and those that despise Him, reject Him, dishonor Him, treat Him with disrespect by willful disobedience. Beloved, the Bible says God's going to treat them lightly. Before that night with Bathsheba, David had been treated with honor and blessing and glory and anointing. After the night with Bathsheba, David was treated lightly for the rest of his life. Still anointed, still blessed but flying at an altitude far lower than the height that he was soaring at before because Joseph ran and David called. Would you turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? I want to show you something else, that it was Paul that said this. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. This is Paul, the, the one that God used to bring us the grace message. This is Paul that God used to write Romans about no condemnation and the grace of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus. This is the same Paul that said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7, he said, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but holiness. Therefore, he that rejects this does not reject man, but he rejects God who has given us his Holy Spirit. I love preaching in Word of Faith churches because people know the Word. If it's in the Bible, they believe it. I don't care what version you're reading from tonight. It says pretty much the same thing. That God calls us to walk in character. He calls us to walk in integrity. He calls us all to walk a lifestyle that honors God, respects God, brings glory to God. The days of the greasy, sleazy grace Beloved, I just hate to be the bearer of bad news or, or good news, depending on where you stand on all this, but I'm just here to tell you it's done. It's over. A new dispensation has come now. It's come. It's here. Look over at Hebrews chapter 12. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. I think it was Paul, 
But at the end of the day, it was God that signed it. So that's all that we need to know. It doesn't matter whose hand he used. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness without which no one will see the Lord. One of the most frightening scriptures in all the Bible to me was where Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, where he said, Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of God, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. And Jesus went on to say, and many, not two or three, but he said, many on that day will say unto me, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out devils in your name? Have we not done many mighty works in your name? And Jesus said, I will say unto them in that day, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. Now, Jesus is not talking to a bunch of rookies here. He's talking to people that prophesy the word of the Lord, that cast out the devils, that do miracles and healings and many signs and wonders that are being greatly anointed and used by God. I want every eye looking at me right now, and I want every ear listening to me right now because this is important. This may very well save your soul. Now, listen to me. The anointing of God does not equal the approval of God. Just because somebody has an anointing does not mean the rubber stamp of God's approval is on their life, on their character, on their integrity, on their message, and everything they do. These guys that Jesus was talking about, the many that are going to say, wait a minute, Lord, wait a minute, you got me mixed up with somebody else. Lord, I'm the one that prophesied. I'm the one that cast out devils. I'm the one, Lord, that did many mighty works. I had a great church. I had a great ministry. I had a big following. I had all kinds of people coming to me. I mean, they watched my TV. They bought my books. They gave me all of this stuff. I did great things for you in the world. And Jesus will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Beloved Samson was anointed with the Holy Ghost when he was on his way to Delilah's house. Samson was anointed with the Holy Ghost when he was gambling with the Philistines. Samson was anointed with the Holy Ghost when he'd gone down there and was cavorting around, gambling and running with prostitutes and drinking. The Spirit of God was on Samson all the way to the end of his life. God is a one that looks at hearts, looks at integrity, looks at motivation, and he sees what you and I don't see. And one of the things that's in the heart of God that he's looking for are the men and women that will run instead of the men and women that will call and compromise. See, some Christians today believe it's better to get forgiveness tomorrow than to get permission today. Joseph would have asked for permission, and he not got it. He wouldn't have done it. David thought, well, you know, I'm anointed. I got the glory. Oh, man, we'll just do a little extra worship tomorrow after Bathsheba leaves. I'm living in the glory, you know. I love the Lord. <laughs> One thing leads to another, and it's a slippery slope. I heard a most amazing story. It took place back in the 1600s over in Europe. There was a young man, just a real goofball. I mean, just a real nitwit. 
that God called to the ministry. And he just loved God, and he just wanted to go into the ministry. And I mean, he just went down there to the priest at the parish, and, oh, brother, God's called me to be a priest like you. Well, that's just wonderful, you know. Gee, why have we gotten along all this time without you? No, I'm serious. God's called me to the ministry. Well, you know, well, let's see. Didn't know what to do to shut him up except send him to the Catholic seminary. Well, he went over there, and they just took one look at him and thought, <laughs> where'd this come from? But they hung around. He couldn't do the academic work. He had horrible people skills. He always said the wrong thing at the wrong time. And I mean, he was just not cut out for the ministry. He was just not cut out. But I mean, he just stayed around. They couldn't get rid of him. They couldn't flunk him. They couldn't kick him out. I mean, they couldn't make him go away. I mean, he was just gum on their shoe. And so finally, to get rid of him, they said, let's graduate him. Just get him out of here. All right, we're going to graduate him. What are we going to do with him after graduate? Well, then we've got to give him a church. So the Catholic bishop found a little Catholic church out in the middle of nowhere, a little dying parish in the middle of nowhere, had two old ladies was all that was left there. Most of the time, one gets sick and the other one take her home. There wouldn't be anybody there, you know. And they thought, well, we'll send him out there. He can't do too much damage. You know, they're going to die, close the building down, and he'll go somewhere else. This young man goes out to his first church. It was a man of prayer, deep, deep prayer. He went there and he announced to his entire congregation, both of them, what God had called him to do. He said, God has called me to pray to make all the people of my church holy, both of them. So he'd pray all night, God, make my people holy. God, make my people holy. On Sundays, he'd preach on holiness. But he'd go on long fast, just, oh, God, make us holy, make us holy, make us holy. God, do that work in our heart that will cause us to be people of integrity that honor you and fear you and reverence you and respect you. Oh, God, do a work in our hearts by your Spirit that will cause us to be like Joseph that would run instead of like David that would call. That young man would pray hours and hours and hours and hours and hours a day the same prayer, God, make my people holy. And over the years, God blessed that church. Kings and queens, prime ministers and presidents, heads of state, heads of industry, the rich and the famous, the most powerful people of Europe came to that place, to that parish, to that church to hear this ill-equipped, ill-educated, wacky little priest that knew God preach on holiness. The hand of God was upon his life. The glory of God was upon his life. And out of his life and out of his ministry before the end of his life, Ultimately came hundreds of churches in France and Italy and Switzerland and that region of Europe. And at the end of his life, he was still just this same eccentric little man that really was very ill-equipped by all natural abilities for ministry. But yet he had a passion in his heart. And God used him to literally touch nations. Touch nations. Why? He honored God and God honored him. It's amazing what he did, just make my people holy. You say, Brother John, why are you talking about Joseph and David tonight? Because I see Joseph and David as being the American church and the dilemma that we face in 2012. Or will we run or will we call? 
will we be people of integrity? Will we be people of honor? Will we be people that walk in the reverence and respect of God and His presence and His glory? Or will we become a people that just love the glory and love revival and love the anointing and love the blessings and will just slide around and slip around and just kind of move the lines every time we want to move the lines? Or will we be the people that Paul talked about, the people that Peter talked about, that knew God? They knew God. Peter didn't know much else beyond fishing, but he knew God. Paul was one of the most brilliant men of his entire generation academically. Peter spent three years with Jesus and went to the upper room and got what he needed. Paul was in school from the time he was eight years old, being educated by the most brilliant Jewish theologians that there were. And then he had his experience on the road to Damascus. But his ministry didn't actually begin for another 15 years. Paul spent all these years in the wilderness trying to get his theology right. And then he had to go home for a year to get his heart right. 14 or 15 years before his ministry began after his road to Damascus experience, but yet an uneducated fisherman and one of the most brilliant minds of his generation after all of these years in the glory, anointing, revelation, open heavens and everything he'd learned academically, they both came to the same place in the same conclusion and said almost the same exact thing. Somebody knew something. Someone had found out something. Someone knew God. They'd heard from God and something had changed in their hearts. I remember reading a book by Kenneth Hagin many, many years ago about a vision that he'd had. I know all of you have read that vision. He had it in the 1970s where he had this vision of these three gigantic frogs that had come up out of the ocean. You remember that? And how these three big frogs had just begun to vomit on America in the 1960s, in the 1970s. You remember 1960s America? How overnight we just went to lawlessness and rebellion, civil disobedience, rioting, drugs, free love, lawlessness, all this stuff. First time in American history that we had a president in the White House, Gerald Ford, that was never elected by the people of the United States as the president because Richard Nixon had resigned in Spiro Agnew. I mean, America's now got an Oval Office with a president in it that nobody ever voted for, only because he was Speaker of the House. Do you remember those days? you remember all the craziness that was going on? And Hagin said he saw this vision, and God said, because my people did not pray and my people did not intercede, all this mess, Vietnam, first time in American history that we'd ever essentially lost a war, and 56,000 lives, families damaged and destroyed because of all that. God said that was never supposed to be. It was not supposed to be. It could have been prevented. You remember that story. We've got to move quickly. Would you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4? I want us to look at one verse of Scripture. This is the same Paul writing to a young preacher, Timothy. And he said in 1 Timothy 4, 1, he said, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of devils. Some will depart from the faith. He didn't say they would depart from Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism. 
It didn't say they would leave the church of Scientology, that they would leave some cult. It said some will depart from the faith. Why? Because they've given heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Would you look over at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul wrote in his second letter saying, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Look what he tells Timothy, under the anointing but with an exclamation point. He said, Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word, Timothy, exclamation point. Be ready in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. My brothers and sisters, that does not sound to me like any teaching I've ever heard in a church growth conference. The way to build a great church is I want you to preach the Word, be ready in season, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. We don't talk about those kind of things, but God did, and Paul did. Our strategy today is just fit in, blend in, be like everybody else, do give them what they want. They'll come. Because in verse 3, he goes on to say, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But the Spirit is saying expressly that there will come a day before Jesus returns, right in the last days, that people are going to actually depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doing this stuff. They won't listen to sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn away their ears away from the truth, and they will be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Can we go back to 1 Peter chapter 1? Because I want to read it to you one more time, and then we're going to conclude tonight. This is the gospel Paul preached. It's the gospel that Peter preached. It's the gospel that Jesus preached. It's all congruent. It's all the same. I want us to look at it again. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 13, where Peter said, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest in your hope, fully upon the grace, hallelujah, thank God for grace and mercy and goodness of God, the loving kindness of God, resting in that, fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he that called you is holy you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in a godly fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Everybody look at me with both eyes and listen to me with both ears. What is holiness? It's not works. It's not keeping the law and fulfilling the law to earn our own righteousness. Jesus bought our righteousness on the cross by His precious blood that He shed there. The holiness that Peter talks about, the holiness that Paul talks about, 
The holiness that Hebrews talks about is simply living a lifestyle of giving God our very, very, very best. Not to earn righteousness. We got that by mercy and grace. It's giving God our best. It's every day. When we're faced with the choices to run or to call, we make that choice, like Joseph said to Potiphar's wife, when he said, and how could I? I mean, if I was willing to sin against your husband Potiphar and betray his trust in me, Joseph said, how could I sin such a sin against Almighty God by doing something that I know in my heart is offensive to God? Therefore, I will not do it. And he ran. And he got accused of it anyway and went to prison for it. But his heart was clean. What is holiness? It's choosing to run. You say, Brother John, what are you talking about? Can I just be real flat out, just straight up and down with you? It's Wednesday night. There's some stuff we don't need to do. There's a life that we don't need to live if we say we love Jesus. There's places we don't need to go. There's stuff we don't need to watch. You say, Brother John, are you being legalistic? No. Are you being rule-centered? No. Are you going around here telling everybody, giving out an approved movie list to go see or approved television list to go see? Or are we instituting a dress code around here that women have got to have their hair just this way and their skirts this length? Or you can't do this, you got to do that, you're supposed to do this, you can't. Are we instituting that kind of stuff? No, 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 no. You don't have to wear your seatbelt when you drive either, but it's good for you if you're in a wreck. We're not going to pass a rule around here that we're going to be checking everybody out when you're pulling out of the parking lot, see if you got on your seatbelt. But I'm here to tell you tonight, you don't wear your seatbelt. You go out there and get in a wreck and get slung out on the road and run over by a truck. You're going to wish, well, I sure wish we'd had a legalistic church down there with it would have required seatbelt usage. No, we're not talking about righteousness. We're not talking about our standing with God. We're talking about survival in this world. David lived with the memory of Bathsheba the rest of his life. It affected him to his dying day. One night with that woman. Can you imagine the scorn and the ridicule David had with all the people that didn't like him? Oh, that old David, boy, he's one of them glory people. I mean, he's always out there worshiping the Lord. Did you hear about Bathsheba? <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. That old David, you got to keep a while on that old David. Boy, I tell you, he'll... Why are you saying all these things, John? Somebody said something to me recently. I didn't know what they were talking about. They said, you know, by and large, Baptist people, do we have any Baptists here tonight? God bless you. I love Baptists. I come from a whole family on the other side. One half of my family was all Baptists. I love Baptists. We were in a Baptist church for four and a half years, and I loved every minute of it. One of the greatest churches, one of the greatest preachers I've ever heard. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. You know, somebody said, well, you know, Baptists, their services are not always flowing in the Holy Ghost, but they will never steal your money. You know, they may not be flowing in the Holy Ghost and exercising the gifts, but if they borrow money from you, they'll pay you back. And they'll get people saved, and they'll get them in the water and get them baptized, and they'll get them in the discipleship program and memorize Scripture and ride herd on them and grow them up to be men and women of God. Now, they may not be down there, oh, the Lord's just showing me this about you, and hallelujah. And man, that was the biggest angel I've ever seen that came today telling me about all this stuff. Does everybody know where I'm going? I'm telling you, 
Those that honor him, he's going to honor those that don't. Payday's coming. I was over in London, England in March. I'd had some of this same fire burning in my heart over there, and I'd been going at it pretty hard for two days, and it was my last service, and it was Sunday morning. I love Sunday mornings at the well, but a lot of Sunday morning church services, I'd really prefer just to start the meetings on Sunday night because I know the Sunday night crowd's going to be the hungry crowd. And I just really don't like going to places where I got to suck peanut butter out of a jar with a straw on Sunday morning with a bunch of people that aren't hungry for God. You know, let them come and do what they want to do, and then we'll have meetings starting on Sunday night. That's not true here. And it's not true everywhere, but it's true a lot of places. But it was Sunday morning, and I knew the crowd that I was going to be running into that hadn't been in any of the meetings since Thursday, you know. And I mean, they're all going to be there on Sunday morning. And so they had me in this hotel, big tall hotel down the street from the church there in London. And about six o'clock that morning, I'd been out. We'd had a great meeting the night before. God had come and power of God. And I'd been laying hands on people for about an hour and a half that night. It was a big church. A lot of people were there. And I mean, I was about, I was about tuckered out. I mean, I didn't get back in bed until about midnight. And so I was sleeping like a baby at six o'clock in the morning and all hell broke loose in my hotel room. All of a sudden, I hear this loud horn going off, beep, 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 and this recorded voice coming over the PA system in this big hotel saying in a British accent, emergency, emergency, evacuate the building immediately, emergency, emergency, evacuate the building immediately. I pull the pillow over my head. I got the blanket over my head. I'm thinking, turn that thing off. Go find that kid that pulled that fire alarm. Leave me alone. I just want to sleep. I just want to sleep. I was sleeping so good. Beep, 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 beep. Emergency, emergency. Evacuate the building immediately. Well, I mean, I just lay there with a pillow over my head and a blanket over my head for about five minutes, six minutes. Just, oh, God. I've done this before. I've been in hotels where some kid would pull the fire alarm in the middle of the night. And I knew that's what this was. But it didn't quit. It didn't quit. It didn't quit. And I just threw the covers back. I jumped up out of that bed. And I stood there with all this noise going on. And I thought, well, maybe I ought to go out and look out the window. So I went over there and looked out the window. I didn't see any red lights or blue lights coming. I didn't see any flames busting out of windows. I didn't see any black smoke bellowing. I thought I knew it. I went back over there and got back in bed and pulled the cover back over my head. I lay there about another five minutes. And then I think, well, if this thing was on fire, what would they be doing? They'd be going beep, 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 emergency, emergency, evacuate the building immediately. So I thought, well, I'll get up and look out the door. So I got up and I looked out the door into the hallway. There was nobody there. I said, I knew it. It was a false alarm. So I go back and lay back down in bed, pull the cover over my head, and then I start thinking about it. Well, maybe everybody else in the hotel believed it really was a beep, beep, beep emergency, and maybe they they evacuated. You know, maybe that's the reason there's nobody there. You know, maybe I'm in this thing by myself. And so then I start thinking, well, you know, if this thing really was on fire, I probably don't need to wait until I got flames falling through the roof before I get out of bed. And I thought, well, if I'm going to leave, I'm not going without my Bible and my passport. Not going to go out there looking like this. I'm going to get dressed and 
you know, comb my hair, get my toothbrush. And, well, if I'm going to take all of that, I better get a suitcase. And so I'm over there packing, you know. All the while, this thing, beep, 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 evacuate, evacuate, leave the building immediately, you know. So I got my bag packed, and I was just, this is just ridiculous, just a re- absolutely ridiculous this time of day, going out of here with my suitcase and my stuff. And I got to the door to walk out of that hotel room door, and the thing quit, all dressed and packed and nowhere to go. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. Why didn't I just stay in bed and pull another pillar over my head and do what I knew was so that this was not anything to it? It was just a big false alarm. And then God came. The Spirit of God came all over me. As I dropped my bag and prepared to crawl back in bed, God came all over me, and I heard the voice of the Holy Spirit say these words to me. He said, you go over there to that church this morning, and you tell them that what you've been preaching is not a false alarm. And that's exactly what I did. Beloved, we love the grace. We thank God for the mercy, the goodness of God, the loving kindness of God. But beloved, there's an urgency in the earth tonight that the church had better heed, and we better start running instead of calling. We better start walking the line in honor and integrity living in the fear of God, the reverence of God, the respect of God, loving God with all of our heart, living for Jesus as though He's coming in five minutes because He might. We must never, ever, 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 ever become susceptible in these last days to doctrines of devils and giving heed to seducing spirits that have departed from the Word of God because they will not endure sound doctrine. There's nowhere in this book that the Bible ever promises to bless lazy attitudes about holiness, to bless lazy attitudes about integrity, bless lazy attitudes about holiness. Nowhere in this book does God ever promise to come and take up your cappuccino and follow me. Come late. Come anytime you want to. Just bring your cappuccino. No, he said, you take up your cross and you follow me daily. Absolute surrender and commitment to give God our best in the full awareness it'll never be enough to earn anything, but may we do it because we love Him and we honor Him. We'll bring His blessing. Would you stand to your feet? Let's pray. Father, I've tried to do what you told me to do. God, I've tried to preach your Word. I've tried. I've really tried. I tried to preach your word. I tried to teach your word. I tried to tell your people what you've told me to tell your people. And Lord, what I do is not popular. But God, we never did it for popularity. We never did it for the applause of men. Never have and never will. But Father, we're just acutely aware tonight that God, you want our best. You want our devotion. And you want our commitment. And Lord, when we're confronted with the world and the things of the world and the values of the world and the attitudes of the world and the issues of the world and what the world says to do, Lord, we understand tonight that we're going to make a commitment to run and we will not call 